Hey, I'm Tavi and welcome to It Looks Like Courage, the podcast. In this episode, we are joined by the wonderful Kerry. She shares with us about her life, her time working for a charity supporting people working in the sex industry. Kerry also talks to us about her journey of receiving a cancer diagnosis at the age of 23. She is honest about the reality of treatment and hospital visits and the reality of her battle. She also describes receiving her terminal cancer diagnosis and the months that follow. Her story is filled with hope. A few weeks after we recorded this podcast, Kerry passed away. She was surrounded by her family and they described her to be at peace. We're so thankful that her family have given us permission to share this podcast. Thanks so much for joining me, Kerry. It's so good to have you. Thank you. Pleasure. One of my main memories of you is us being in a small group together and you always bringing the most amazing baked treats. (laughs) But I think the small group started in January and then for Lent, you gave up sugar and chocolate. Yeah, I did, stupidly. And then, but you still made all this (laughs) stuff and I was trying to work out how do you have the willpower to not even dip your finger in and eat it? How did you do it? Do you know what? I don't actually think I, I. caved and ate it no, as you well. Didn't. Well, from what you told us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that I've, I've just hidden that from my memory. Yeah, no idea how I did that. Quite determined. Quite <laughs> determined determination. And <laughs> um, where did your love of baking come from? Um, I've always baked with my mum and uh, on a Sunday afternoon my brother, I remember my brother used to go off and play football after church and in the afternoons, me and my mum and my younger sister would always bake together. And that would just be like our little thing that we did um, for years and years. Nothing elaborate, just something little. And then I just loved eating it. And so because <laughs> I liked eating it, you have to make it, don't you? You do. And um, homemade cake is way better than the short cake. I agree. Ever tempted to sign up for Bake Off? No. Gosh, it looks so stressful. <laughs> it does, it looks horrible. And half the stuff they make just doesn't look like... No, and it all falls apart yeah. and you have to run to put it in the fridge and... No, I'm so much happier doing it in my own kitchen. <laughs> so, tell us about growing up. You've got a sister and a brother. Anybody else at home? I do. So, there's, there's two more as well. So, I'm one of five siblings. Um, I'm number four in the pecking order. So, I've got an older brother, older sister, another older brother and then a younger sister. So there's all five of us, and my mum and dad, and we grew up in Bournemouth. Lived by the sea, um, always very, life was very chaotic, very busy. It was, it was good fun, always like, the door was always open. So we had a door that actually didn't lock if you shut it, <laughs> and so it meant people could just walk in and out, which was at times frustrating, but um, for the majority of the time, it was just nice to have people over all the yeah. time and mum and dad have always been very accepting and welcoming of people so you never quite knew who was going to be around for dinner that night but that is fun that was the joy of it what what do you reckon about you as number four or five that's different from your other siblings can you see things in yourself yes that's different i'm i've got middle child syndrome yeah i because well, you're not the, you're not the oldest so you don't like rule the roost but you're not the youngest you don't get babied yeah. Um, and because my younger sister's four years younger, so yeah. she's quite a bit younger, I think I just had to be that little bit louder, that little <laughs> bit more stubborn. I was definitely the one that just started all the arguments <laughs> and um, irritated people. I think I I just had more of a place I had to make myself known. Mm-hmm. Because four, you just get lost in the middle yeah. of it all. Like, who's child four? No one knows. <laughs> most of the youngest, I guess. As most people I know, if they're four, they are the last one. Yeah, exactly. Baby. Yeah, so I think um, probably just more irritating features, to be honest. <laughs> Did you like being one of five? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I think at times... Um, Whilst I had these attributes, my dad did used to say to me, like, oh, you really could have done with being an only child. (laughs) But, no, in hindsight, I absolutely loved it. And now as well, I really appreciate having all the siblings. And when everyone's back together and at Christmas, I just 
Yeah, I wouldn't have any, yeah. any other way. I always used to look at families of like two and just think, oh, that looks no, really boring. No, yeah. <laughs> I and imagine if you didn't even like that one sibling. Yeah, stuck with be... them. Yeah. And there are seasons where you don't always <laughs> like every single one. Exactly, and that's the beauty of having four other siblings, because yeah. if one annoys you, you just move on to the next <laughs> one that you want to play with. Do you remember your little sister coming and being four? Do you, like, can you sort of remember her yeah. arrival in your place of baby being taken? Yeah, I, I remember the exact scene that I got told. So... Um, the big predicament was if it was a girl, I'd have to share a bedroom. Okay. If it was a boy, my brother up with me would have to share a bedroom. So we were being looked after by family friends on a Sunday after church. And my dad came into the hallway of that house and said, you've got a little sister. And I burst into tears, absolutely howled the house down. And I just remember my brother going, yes. And him just running around the room dancing. And um, yeah, from that age, literally straight away, we then shared a bedroom for the majority of my childhood. That's so funny. <laughs> when did you manage to not have a share room anymore? Oh, it was quite late, probably um, nine, ten. Okay. And I was just meticulously tidy. <laughs> and she was so messy. So I used to put like dividers down the room of like books and toys and be like you can't cross my line oh bless her um and what did you want to be what were your dreams what your hopes when you were little do you know what I I can't pinpoint anything that I wanted to be I never I never had a job that I wanted to do I never at school it was always like I was kind of good at like all right at most things I never really excelled at one particular thing I was just always, I think I was just always out and about. I was quite sporty. We lived um, a three-minute walk from the beach. Oh, wow. So we were always down there. And, yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't like, a hard studier. You know, I worked kind of hard. But there was never, like, one thing that I wanted to be able to do. I, yeah. I, I just never had a clue. So how did you end up studying theology? Well, I, um, so I did a gap year, and in... Uh, at a church and decided that I'll rewind so when I was 14 I went to Spring Harvest and listened to a talk about a woman who had um, in the local area she wanted to get to know some of the sex workers and uh, she knew where all the venues were and they had no idea how to get into them and so they decided one day after praying that they would bake uh, cupcakes for these women and so all afternoon they baked cupcakes and then knocked on the door um, and they the door answered to them and the madam of the brothel of the venue that they went to kind of looked at them um, asked who they were and they said oh we're from the local church and they let them in and because it was such an unassuming invite I guess they totally let them in and it wasn't um it wasn't intimidating, there was nothing, there was nothing like scary I guess about their offer of cupcakes, it was just simply that and so for weeks they used to do that and then after a while they really got to know the girls, they got the opportunity to pray with them, they became friends with them and just built up relationships and I remember being 14 and saying to my two best friends at the time, and I've gone, well they're still my best friends, that um we went to spring harvest, we were just saying, like, that's exactly what I want to do. Mm. And being 14, and then talking about women in the sex industry, who, you know, obviously are not, well, then not 14. Yeah. Um, it was quite an interesting thing. So I remember telling my parents, and then kind of listening, but also kind of thinking, gosh, my 14-year-old daughter yeah. wants to do this, and that's scary. And to be honest, I put it on the back burner and just um, didn't think about it. I'd always really known that was something I wanted to do. And then when I was 17, I worked in a deli cafe that was in the, probably more of like the red light district of where I grew up. Um, and really, again, got to know individuals that were, basically just didn't really have friends, that were maybe working in the area. And I feel like it was at that point that I really had my heart changed for just a different group of people. Yeah. Um, so I came and did my gap year, worked at a church, and just knew that it was it was um, vulnerable women that I wanted to work with. And mm. I I wasn't really that interested in going to uni and studying to, I don't know, 
be a doctor or a teacher, but um, I want to work with vulnerable women. So I started interning at a charity that worked with sex workers or women that had been trafficked. And in that, I found myself just coming into contact with um, questions about faith that I'd never had to, I'd never had to deal with before. And my parents had kind of talked to me about studying and thought that would be a wise thing to do alongside it. Um, And so it was then that I decided to study theology alongside interning at this charity. Amazing. And did you find that you could find some of the answers that you were looking for when you were studying theology? Yeah, I think it, it just encourages you to go a bit deeper. I think once you go deeper, you then obviously realise there's a lot more that you don't know. But it gave me a really good basis for just a basic understanding. Mm. I'd say I'm no, I'm no whiz or professor, but I it really helped me know where to go mm-hmm. when the questions were asked. Yeah. And as I got, um, I did a year's internship and then was employed by this charity. And I think when talking to the girls, they just had so many questions. They knew yeah. that we were all Christians. They knew it was a Christian charity. And um, obviously they just wanted to know how we could believe yeah. in what we did when so many awful things were happening in the world. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that we did a, an amazing job answering the questions, but I think we could go some way into explaining how God loved them. God didn't want um, a life of exploitation for them, and that was not the world that he made. But unfortunately, it's the world that we do live in. Yeah, that's amazing. And whilst you were interning and working for that charity, you developed Forte Bakery. Mm. Tell us a little bit that and the vision that you that you had for it whilst it was kind of beginning. Yeah, so I have obviously always loved baking, was really, really loving my work at the charity and kind of wanted to combine the two in a way that would really, um, I guess that would just give the girls at the charity a new way, a new thing to do that would um, progress their skills, um, just something a bit different to get their minds off what they were doing. Mm. So I'd been volunteering at a few other charities in London and then decided that we could just run it for ourselves. So I developed Forte Bakery, which was a six-week baking course, um, what we do was we hired a well we were given a local church's kitchen, and it was a six week course where the w- the women would come in. I teach them how to bake something each week, mm-hmm. and it was just a couple of hours where they could come in, they could learn how to bake, they could be away from their situations, from um, anything that was happening at home or in their work life. And that there were people there that actually really cared about them. So everyone was uh, one-to-one. There was um, a support worker working with one of the um, women that came in. And it was just two to three hours learning to bake, getting to know each other. And then in the break times, we'd do a Bible study. And we'd go through a book of the Bible. And they didn't have to do it if they didn't want to. But actually... They were all very intrigued as to why we were all in, intrigued yeah. by the Bible. There was something about it that um, they'd grown a, a real respect for us because we'd got to know them through doing the baking. Mm. Um, they were the ones in charge. We were always the ones that helped and that were the sous chefs, essentially. Yeah. So um, they'd all be bossing everyone and all the other staff from Karis around the kitchen. And then... We'd all share in the food that we'd eaten, yeah. which was so powerful because um, I think we saw there was a lot of a lot of the women lacked confidence because mm. there wasn't a lot of encouragement in their life, or um, people hadn't really been building them up over the years, or had supportive I don't know maybe not supportive families or friends, and so actually something as simple as baking a cake or a cookie, mm. tasting it and being like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Mm. It just gives you uh, like a self-confidence that you maybe didn't realise yeah. that you were lacking. Yeah. And just seeing the smiles in their face or them lift their shoulders or heads a bit higher after you 
had just affirmed and then eaten this mm. cookie in front of them. So you're not like pretending and then, <laughs> you know, sticking yeah. it out behind their backs, but just being like, this is so good. It just did wonders. So, you know, that alongside the Bible studies, alongside actually baking it and getting to know them, those two, three hours were just so formative. Did that, those sorts of moments where you had all these questions about faith, you know, that you talked about, but did those moments just make you recognise what who Jesus is and why he was so relational and why he came and he lived like amongst us and that kind mm. of I don't know sometimes when you're just with people yeah it, you don't need to have every answer do you to the question it's almost you just reminded that his kingdom is yeah is I think for everyone yeah I think it it really highlighted was how how incredibly complex it all is but actually at the, like simultaneously how simple it is mm-hmm. um you have all the the ins and outs of the bible and theologians going really deep which is great and that is for some people to study but then also the fact that everybody can just read the gospels Mm. and see how Jesus lived amongst normal people yeah and what that looks like in our everyday life is just baking cookies with people yeah and that's it yeah and everybody can do that and it's not it's not an exclusive club it's not um it's not difficult to get into it's just hanging out that's literally the essence of the bible yeah and that's really exciting when you're then doing it, reading the Bible, matching it together and, and you can really say hand on your heart, like, gosh, we're playing some part in this journey that yeah. Jesus has asked us to live out. Yeah. And we may never see the fruits of anything that happens and that's okay. Yeah, but at the same time, like you said, that smile on their face of being recognised as being great at making, at making cookies is, is a bit of a fruit, isn't it? It's yeah. like those moments where you see someone realise that they're worth it they're worth something it's yeah. huge so um you finished uni and carried on working for the charity and moved yeah. into London but then at that point um you yeah you had a diagnosis mm-hmm. um can you talk us through sort of finding out about the diagnosis what it was yeah. um, and that kind of initial yeah the initial moments of that yeah so I I did uni alongside working for Caris and at the end of the three years, graduated, decided I'd move into London. Um, I was 23, so everything was going very swimmingly. I was in a nice place, living with some of my best friends. And then I developed a cold that didn't seem to shift. Um, I'm quite a coldy person, just one of those gross people that always seems <laughs> to be blurring the nose. But um, yeah, this just wasn't shifting, and I, I just knew it in my body that it wasn't right. So I went to the doctors, um, they diagnosed me with sinusitis, so I guess that's just a chronic cold, that didn't go away. So then after going back to the GP a few times and really pressing, being like this isn't right, they sent me for some scans and at the start of December they diagnosed me with something called rhabdomyosarcoma, which was a cancer in the sinonasal passage of my face that is common in 60 year old men um so yeah finding out that at that age and at such a peak I think having graduated moved mm-hmm. to London live with friends you just don't expect that to happen and um yeah obviously that was when things just came crashing down and and when that first diagnosis came in and you hear the word cancer what was what if you remember what was your sort of first reaction um to that thinking I'm 23 Mm. what so well I'd had a biopsy on they'd found the tumor but they'd said um don't worry like it's it's likely to be benign which you know non-cancerous so really don't worry about it so um my parents who are back in Bournemouth they insisted on coming to the appointment but I said no I don't need you to it's not going to be cancerous at all, don't worry about it. So my brother and sister-in-law were made to, by my mum, uh, come along with me. And I sat in, and I walked into the room and there were three medical professionals in there. So my brother said that he knew right from yeah. the beginning and I had no clue. And um, he just said it instantly, um, I'm really sorry, but it's cancer. And I just sat there and I was like, okay. And just kind of sat there fine, smiled, like was just listening to what he was saying. And I think it only hit me about three minutes later when I looked to my left and my 
older brother was just sobbing his mm. heart out. I was like, oh, yeah, this is big. Yeah. Um, but at the beginning, I guess when you find out any type of cancer, you have no idea whether it's, you know, something that can be solved within weeks with just a bit of surgery or whether you need years of treatment. And so um, I was quite like, yeah, it'll be fine. Mm. You know, not really sure what this will entail. So um, we then left and I did the rounds of calling my parents and short, brief conversations of just saying, yeah, it's cancer. And yeah, I guess the same at 23, it's not something that anyone expects. And then also, I think having maybe grown up where I did and I was still best friends with all the people I grew up Mm. with. And um, to be quite honest, it was quite just a privileged, fortunate place where actually a lot of my friends hadn't really experienced difficult Mm. things. And so I actually didn't call any of my friends. I just sent out a group message because they all knew I was having this appointment and I just said, like, guys, it's cancer. I don't really know what the treatment is, what this means, but I just want you to know. And then it was the weeks that went on from that that I then discovered that I'd need nine courses of radi- of um, chemotherapy um, and that it was going to start within three weeks of finding out. It was going to be, like, the most hard-hitting, tough stuff yeah. that um, you could imagine. Uh, so, yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind from that point. So, not yeah, not long. Three weeks to kind of get your head around the fact that for the next... What is that, nine months yeah. at least? Of, yeah, you're going to be having treatment every three weeks or something. Yeah. And did you, you know, there's often people talk about hair loss with chemo. Did you mm. think through all that kind of... Does it feel shallow thinking like, oh my goodness, my hair, when you know you're going in for that? Or is that something... I think in hindsight, from now, it feels incredibly shallow. But at the time, you know, that was my biggest thing. I had long, blonde, yes. beautiful locks at the time. And... um I went into the room where they were talking about the treatment plan and I they, they said to me, like, you are going to lose your hair. And I remember just thinking about it and being like, okay, that's fine. And then I remembered that I was being a bridesmaid that summer and I just said to my sister and I said, I'm a bridesmaid for Abby this summer. I don't want to look ugly and just yeah. burst into tears. <laughs> and I think that was the first moment where I realised, like, oh, gosh, life is really about mm. change and that's just a I guess the hair loss is an outward sign isn't it of all yes. that's going on inside and that your body is quite literally being poisoned mm. and um yeah the life was about to change but in that time it was Christmas okay. so from starting the from being diagnosed to starting the treatment I had Christmas so I came home and I was literally like form of celebrity because everyone had heard of all this news and um it was actually one of the best Christmases I've ever had because I just got so many presents everyone (laughs) wanted to see me everyone wanted to go out for a drink with me and um I did kind of forget about what was about to happen until I returned to London to start chemotherapy on um the 28th of November and then it really did hit me like a train yeah wow (laughs) and how like how was the chemotherapy as an as an obviously it's awful but mm. for you what what was your yeah what were your kind of memories of that initial um first few sessions it was just hideous it was as bad as everyone kind of says yeah. i think um so i started on the 28th of december which meant that on the ward there was just really no one there and with my plan it was Every three weeks I had to go into hospital for two days and I had eight hours each day. So it was even just if you weren't having chemotherapy, Mm. sitting there for that time is long. But I was really violently sick and had every symptom under the sun. I remember going home on the first night and vomiting so much that I did think I'm going to be dead by the morning. And having that, you know, when you're asleep and you're having like a bit delirious thoughts, I just knew like I was going to be dead. And um, it didn't really get a lot better than that, to be honest. I would then have it again in three weeks time, but it would take the three weeks for me to recover. So for the first week I could, you know, barely walk, couldn't really eat, Um, started losing all my hair. I was hospitalised then because 
you become neutropenic, so the the chemotherapy wipes out your white blood cells. Um, You catch infections really quickly, so then you're in hospital. And it just was a miserable cycle then of every Mm. three weeks being poisoned, having to build yourself back up only to be poisoned again. And then I found out that they were sending me to America to have proton beam therapy, which was basically a specialised form of radiotherapy that targeted the tumour in a more... um, It was just more precise and further along scientific technology, I guess. And did you feel all that time like it's all going to be worth it because it's just going to get rid of this cancer? Or did you have questions over whether it would even work? What was sort of like in your... your, Yeah, inside your head, what were you thinking? How did you... I think I... I definitely, um, to everyone else, definitely thought, like, just say, I need to get to the end of this, and then I'll be able to go back to work, and Mm. then everything will be okay, it will be fine. I think I never voiced it in those nine months, but I did always think, but I might die. Mm. But you never want to say that, because the people closest to you are the people suffering the most. And so, in a way, even though it was my thing, I had to be strong for everyone because they're going through it in a way just as much as me. Yeah. Um, so it is a funny one, because you you kind of have no one to talk to in, the, in yeah. a way, because you don't want to, you don't want to add uh, further emotional trauma to people yeah. that are already going through so much. And did you find anyone that you could say, I mean, I know you've got so many great supportive people, but was there, was there any places where you could just say, I'm, I'm really scared, or... I think... To an extent, I I am really fortunate that I have... No, not to an extent. I am really fortunate I have a lot of best friends um, from childhood that I would share anything with, and my family as well. But that one thing I never mm, shared with anyone sure. because I just thought, no, that's a little bit too far. And faith-wise, how did you, how did you reconcile that with... I mean, you know, people praying you know, determine that God would heal, mm. all those things, presumably you're praying where you've got the energy to, yeah. sometimes you just let other people do it, don't you, because you haven't yeah. got the energy, but, and in that, in that nine months, what, yeah, how did you reconcile, um, what was happening to you? Mm. I think I never once blamed it on God at all, and, and still never, never have thought, oh, it was God that brought that on, I know that we live in a, a world that's messy and broken and so I think for me it was really easy to um compartmentalize that mm. the cancer wasn't God's will it's not it's not anything that he yeah wanted of my life and so I couldn't ever be angry at the same time he does have the power to to save he has the power to heal me but at the same time, he may not. Mm. And that's really hard and feels really unfair at times. And I think um, a lot of my friends actually found that hard. I think when, yeah. it, when it's yourself that you're... It's yourself that you're fight and you're fighting it, you can kind of... Um, I don't know how to explain it. Like You're like, I'm fighting this, we'll see what happens. Whereas yeah. for other people, they feel more helpless. Mm. At least for me, I was going through the chemo. I was like taking this face on and going through all this hard, hard times physically. Whereas everyone else was kind of looking at it emotionally where they couldn't do much and all they could do was pray. So mm. it felt, I think it felt quite frustrating and a bit of a slog. Yeah. I think going to church in those times was, was very difficult and often found myself kind of at the back of church thinking hearing healing stories yeah. and thinking lovely like <laughs> that's good that your arm got healed of you know being broken but yeah. I've got cancer and I don't know whether it's going to go away yeah yeah that comparison when you hear about someone's sort of leg growing half a centimetre yeah com- you know and you think well, why would you do that yeah and not and you want to be so I I did I was so grateful that God had healed those people but at the same time you can't help be I don't know is it self, like a little bit selfish mm. and be like but why are you not healing me mm. that just and I guess the, those are the sorts of things that you'll never know until you 
see Jesus face to face. And And then whether you even want to ask because you'll see him face to face. Yeah. So had the nine months, then went to Florida. Was that three months? Yeah. Yeah. So I was in Florida for three months. And then came back and presumably had another appointment to find out what had happened. Yeah. So I had a couple more. So it was in June where I'd finished my finished my chemotherapy, finished proton therapy in June. Um, it was really sunny, Wimbledon was on. I think the World Cup had just started and we went to the hospital and they said it hasn't worked. Just, and just no. Just, that was it. Yeah. It hadn't worked. Um, the tumour was still there. It was a little bit smaller, but it hadn't gone. And that was the main thing. So if they... If they had t- it had completely gone, then the chances of you know coming back would have been a lot lower. Whereas because it had shrunk, it only meant that it would grow again. So they said, um, we have one more option, and that is to do surgery on it. And that would be quite intrusive surgery. Um, they did all the explaining what could go wrong. It was basically going in at my face at all angles. They said that. I probably wouldn't look like myself afterwards. It would be kind of 14-hour surgery. Um, yeah, really laid it on thick. And they were like, what do you think? And like, you know, in that moment, this is my one chance of survival. Mm-hmm. Of course I'm going to say yes. Yeah. So I then, yeah, signed myself up for surgery. Um, and it can it continued to be cancelled actually like I had my first appointment it's meant to be October and I'd done the 24-hour fast I was ready I was in hospital I was gowned up and they said you know the surgeon's ill and then it happened again and did it all and they said oh yeah there's not a bed free and just the emotional like highs and lows that you go through when you're thinking like I'm about to go for surgery that is going to save my life it's the only thing that I can do that will enable life to resume as normal and then suddenly just because there's not a bed for it all mm. kind of comes crashing down yeah. so the meltdowns that I had in <laughs> those beds in hospital probably even I'd look back now and say we're a slight overreaction but at the time it was just no, yeah. everything was on that yeah. surgery and um and when they give you that amount of like risk so you're psyching yourself up for yeah this 14 hour surgery and then for that not yeah. to happen even all of those that side of it is so intense, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. So then it finally did happen. Yes, yeah, so it happened in, I think it's the 3rd of December 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, they managed to do it. It was, it was a real miracle, actually, I believe, because they managed to do the surgery in about, I think it was six hours, so wow. less than half the time. I was then in intensive care, but they said I'd, I'd probably be in um, IE for about five days to a week. And I was there for 12 hours. And I was out of hospital within, from the surgery starting, I was out of hospital within two days. That's amazing. Um, Yeah, and my recovery was quick. I was able to, I went out on Christmas Eve. I was like able to enjoy Christmas (laughs) fully. And they said you'd be bed bound for six weeks. Wow. Well, by six weeks I was back at work. Yeah. And I'd... um, I really had like started normal life again. I'd mm. moved back to London. I'd moved back in with my best friends. I'd got my job back at the at Caris, and that was January twenty nineteen. And I was just like, this is my year. I'm ready. We're back at it. Last yeah. year was a definite blip, and then this year's going to be my year. And then you went back to the consultant at some point. Yeah. After that, for more scans or tests. Yeah. Or... So I went. Actually, went back on. Uh, about the end of February and they said like yeah you're all good you're all clear like go enjoy your life so that was the real like wow I can step forward the surgery's worked uh the cancer is not on my face anymore and so you're fully able to go back to work and start all your exercise and and that's what you'd wanted you said a few times Mm. like it's wanted to be normal like normal life back at work and so you they kind of release you to do that yeah so Um, that was done and then I was at work. Um, I was at work a couple of days later, and got a phone call saying uh, you need to come in for another consultation. I was like, oh, I've just, I like I've just been in. 
what's this about? And they said, oh, we can't tell you, I'm afraid. And I was like, okay, well, do I need someone with me? And they really stuttered on the phone. And they said, oh, well, maybe... And I was like, well, the thing is, my parents live in Bournemouth, it's a two-hour journey. If it's just going to be to say, like, oh, you need a blood test, then there's no point in them coming up. And they said, um, you really should have someone with you at this appointment. And so I I sat... We were actually at a conference at um, Soul Survivor... And I sat behind the church and just sobbed because I knew that, I knew that it was bad. Yeah. I knew that it had come back, um, and just didn't know. It was a, literally a week into like starting life again, and um, it was quite. It was precious actually. I went back in and stood with a couple of my colleagues, and both of them just wept with me. And mm-hmm. it was like, it was just such a lovely moment of unity of them being like things could be about to get worse mm. again, but we're standing here with mm. you and we've got you back. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I had the appointment. I think it was maybe the next day or two days later. And they said that it, the cancer had come back in my lungs and that it was treatable, but it was no longer curable and that I had six to 12 months left to live. What what do you do with that? I mean, there's, yeah, short term. Well, you you just think like a week ago I was told to live my life, and now I'm being told that I've got a year left to live yeah. tops. Um, and so they just they left us in the room for a bit, and I remember being with my parents. Thank goodness that they were there, and we all just sobbed, and we were just like. At, you know, 24 years of age, getting a terminal diagnosis, it's not what you expect at all. Um, and then, you know, whilst I was crying, and whilst, whilst we were all crying, my dad said to me, but Kerry, you have to remember that this is just a blip on the, ro- on the road to eternity and we are all just passing through. And, um... It's so true. Mm. I mean, like, it. Re- this life that we're living now is, um, it is so short. Like, difficult things happen. They happen to everyone. And I think the more that I've experienced all of this, um, the more that life really is tough for everyone. And it's not just a few people that go through hardships. Mm. And um, But this life is really short. And although at times we put a lot of hope in it, we are just passing through and um blips happen to everyone and this is just my blip and so I think right from the offset even though I got an awful diagnosis my dad had already pointed it to Jesus Mm. and from that point on my family have always just had really good perspective on it it's amazing um yeah so then had to go and do all the rounds of telling people and that must have been exhausting. Announcing to everyone <laughs> that I was going to die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, yeah, that was that was really tough. Oh, I, that, sorry. I, I did spend the day, actually, with my niece and nephew, mm. who were, at the time, um, I think six and eight. And I just decided I wasn't going to tell anyone until the end of the day. And we just had a picnic and went to the park, and I cooked them dinner, and they complained about how they didn't like my bolognese. <laughs> and it was just really normal. Yeah. Just, I wanted those few hours just of normality and no one tiptoeing around or yeah and that was the friday and um yeah that weekend then had many highs and lows to Mm. it and from that point you decided to maybe kind of tick up some of your bucket list or have some adventures um so how did that come about kind of planning a few great trips yeah well so obviously i think everyone was just in absolute shock and I think everyone just went into a bit of a oh, let's screw it mode like yeah everyone just wanted to do fun things yeah. and suddenly the little things in the world didn't matter anymore yeah which was really lovely to see it was nice to see friends that had been so I guess caught up on the little things in life just let them go and yeah. um that weekend I had conversations with friends and weeks after about people changing jobs because they were like, life's too short to do a job that you don't enjoy or to be worrying about money because you're earning more or whatever. So we actually managed to pull 10 friends together and we went to Jamaica, booked it with six days to go, 
and we all just flew out there and had an amazing time and just I knew I was going to start chemotherapy again um I've been told that my brother was expecting a baby yeah so and she was going to be due um eight months time and so being given six to 12 months yeah. to live you're like oh I need to do something if I'm gonna meet her so started the chemotherapy after I got back from Jamaica but that was just my one kind of yeah. big blowout with uh, <laughs> 10 of my best friends from home just to make sure we'd had a good time yeah. together before things got difficult again amazing and for your family for your dad having that perspective immediately just saying like eternity's where we're all going mm-hmm. um have there been moments where you've been fearful like are you definitely going or any of those things any doubts crept in or is your kind of just feel like your faith being sustained that you can see where you're headed yeah I think you get real moments where you're on a high and you're like yeah I'm going to heaven I'm not scared like this is all fine what's all the fuss about and then you get real real times I think for me where the big thing I fear is is like the the dying process at the Mm. end what that looks like all the I feel like the last two years I've just been through some really difficult suffering and my body's endured pain like no other but at the same time I I know it's about to get a whole lot worse but Mm. I'm not sure when yeah um as we're recording this now, actually, I'm a, about a month away from it being a year. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm sitting here fairly healthily, if yeah. you can call that. Um, so, yeah, so nobody knows when it's going to come. And so, you, yeah, I, I am scared at different points, but my faith has been unwavering. I mean, it, it looks, definitely looks different now mm-hmm. because you have a very different perspective on things and I think you don't get caught up in the little things of life anymore because you think well I might not be here next week yeah I think you have to take things more lightly Mm. um but at the same time taking things seriously as well Mm. but yeah all in all I do there there's like a a very simple and peaceful assurance of it and just know that um yeah, that I'll be with Jesus one day and I don't know when that day is mm. going to come, whether it will be sooner or later. And that my family will be there too and some of my close friends will be there, which is amazing. And, and although it will, be, um, it will be painful for them, I think, yeah, holding on to that is, is all you can do, isn't mm. it? And you talk about, with your family especially, life, without you potentially Mm. yeah we one thing my brother said to me actually when I was first diagnosed was he said I'm really grateful that we've been told this because we can tell you everything that we that we want to Mm. um he gave the example of one of his friends at school lost his um brother in a car crash and he never got to say you know, his final goodbye or anything. Um, So Sam just said, we can tell you everything that we loved about you and and that's become a really normal thing, which has been very... It's been really good for our family. I wouldn't say we were totally um, really emotional and really, like, Mm. I don't know, uh, affectionate to each other, but it's definitely become more so... And yeah, it's been a, it's been a really good process of just being like, I'm really gonna miss this about mm. you, or I'm really not gonna miss how you boss everyone <laughs> around the house at Christmas, or you dictate things, or um, yeah. But we can still be really honest about with each other, yeah. and just and even planning. It sounds it does sound weird, but. I've had conversations with my parents and my family about planning a funeral mm. um, because for me as a Christian I think that's like that's my last big blowout for mm-hmm. all my friends and family that yeah. aren't Christians and I want to do it really well so yeah. I've I've been thinking about you know people that I want to say things or songs that I want there or how I want it to look mm. because 
I want all that I've done in my life to point to Jesus mm. and your funeral's your last big thing, isn't it? And yeah. so yeah, if I can do anything, my last bit of planning would be that. <laughs> and one thing that is um well it's always been part of you is joy, isn't it? Like that's mm-hmm. not that's not a new characteristic that you've developed, that's just part of you and I'm sure that everybody who's known you a long time will say the same. But at at the moment your kind of motto and all over your social media and your close friends, choose joy mm. is is the phrase. And did that just how did that come about? Why is that so important? Mm. I think it actually came about when I was at university and I was talking to one of my best friends, Maddie, and we were both talking through difficult things that that had been happening in our lives. And um, we really, we always used to say to each other, like, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Yeah. And in those tough times, it was so true and, and it's truer and it's still as true now, is that the joy of the Lord really is our strength. And I, I felt like I needed to kind of look into it a little bit. And um, I wrote a I wrote a blog post a few months ago and um, kind of looked into what does joy mean? What does happiness mean? What's the difference? And yeah, are they different at all? And um, the thing that I found, that I, that I wrote down said that happiness is circumstantial. It's an emotional reaction to situations you find yourself in and a response to what you enjoy. Joy is something that your soul experiences and something your body responds to through knowing an inner fulfilment and being satisfied in that knowledge. And um, I think it's just that. It's like joy is the certainty of the future and mm. it's, it's the contentment in I know where I'm going. Yeah. I know that heaven is the ultimate destination um that one day I'll see him face to face and all throughout life through whatever you're going through when things are hard if you remember the joy of the Lord the joy of the Lord is that Jesus has gone before you Mm. he's died for you he's he's made a way that heaven is possible and if you remember all those things in the hard times doesn't that just make it so much easier Mm. knowing that the difficult things on this earth are momentary Mm. and they'll be gone within a flash Mm. so what does choose joy look like for your friends tell us about some of the ways that they are choosing joy and showing you they're doing that i think um so one of my friends for example she was an accountant and probably making decent money and she just was bored of it and knew that it wasn't really kind of what she wanted to do and she's now training uh, to be a detective and she's loving it and having a great time and a few of my friends have switched jobs just because they're like it was earning me good money but it it wasn't bringing me life it wasn't bringing me you know what I really thought um things like money uh Mm. I guess at our age I'm 25 people are saving for mortgages now but you know they could get a challenge on friend on it. And, and money's a funny one because, you know, yeah. you need to be a good steward of your money, but also you don't want to be so frugal that you're not generous with it. And one of my friends was holding it quite tightly at one point. And I said, well, what if you died tomorrow? Mm. What if you've got a terminal diagnosis and you've not been able to be generous this whole time yeah. because you're fixated on something. And I think it's just, it is those decisions. They're the big things, but that's the little things in life. You know, something goes wrong or someone's late to pick you up or things that really frustrate us mm-hmm. day to day. And I have such a short fuse, lots of things frustrate me. But you just need to step back in that time and think, wow, this really... If I gain some perspective, this yeah. really is not a big deal. It doesn't It doesn't matter. It's not a life or death situation. And ultimately, by tomorrow, I would have forgotten about yeah. it. And choose joy for you, in, in especially in the last sort of six months of the sort of more yeah, non-curable diagnosis. Yeah. What, what is, what's that look like? What's that required from you to be able to choose joy? I think... Um, for me, like last week, I wasn't that well, and I was in bed for most of the week, and it 
it got me down it um it really frightened me because i think it it showed me a little glimpse of something to come something that was to come mm-hmm. um and i just kept kind of going back to thinking about the joy of the lord being our strength and to choose joy in those situations and um i think not f- like fixating on just the pain of now mm. and what's going on and me just lying in my room and being a bit unhappy but knowing knowing the goodness of god in it all and all throughout this journey seeing the goodness of god have you had to work hard to see it or is it because you're you're you kind of opened yourself up in the attitude you no, I don't, naturally. I don't think I've had to work hard. There's been really difficult moments, like real, real lows, as you can imagine. But it's also been some of the most fun and genuinely joyous two years. Mm. Um, I don't doubt for a moment all of God's goodness in it. And just the opportunities I've had, the friendships that I've had. And I am really fortunate to have those. I know so many people that would be... There are lots of people in life that would go through this without all those relationships, mm. and I, I don't know how people do it. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot to be thankful for. And when you look back, because you, like you're saying, you don't know when you'll be going to heaven, you don't know when that time's coming. Um, when you look back, what, like, what things would you advise? Like, you know, saying about the choosing joy and not letting um, some of the big things, sorry, the small things become big things. Um, yeah, anything that you'd say to people? Gosh, big question. Um, I think it's nothing, it's absolutely nothing new, but I think it, is, it sounds so cliche, but it is really like seizing every day. Mm-hmm. And just, I think it's, it's really um, choosing to enjoy each day, making the most of it, just not getting yourself so worked up about things of this earth and that sounds very twee and very lovely and a lot harder than it actually is but it is really true I think always grounding yourself to that and like recentering yourself I think I've I've really tried to each day recenter myself on like this life is very fleeting Mm. And if I think I've already done 25 years and I feel like such a child and I feel like I'm <laughs> right at the beginning, yeah. you know, what will eternity be like? Like In eternity, that is a long time. And yeah. that, is, that was what we were made for. We weren't yeah. made for this world. So there really is so much more to life, isn't there? Yeah. Thank you so much, Kerry. It's been so amazing to hear you talk and hear about just, yeah, like the small moments of courage, but also enormous ones so thank you thank you for having me